0: Everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to the works of Stephen King. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code The Circle for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Hey, everyone. I'm Sarah. Welcome back to The Circle Opens. Today, I'm really excited because we are going to talk about I Am the Doorway, which is the fourth story in King's compilation of short stories called Night Shift. And I Am the Doorway was originally published in March of 1971 in Cavalier magazine. It was also adapted into three different films, one in 2015, 2017, and 2018. The film in 2018 was directed by Simon Pierce, and this adaptation actually won a lot of awards, including the Philip K. Dick Best Sci-Fi Short in 2018. I have not seen any of these adaptations, but I'm going to look them up and see if I can give them um, a viewing to see how well they stick to the source material I think adapting a short film, or I'm sorry, a short story into a short film can be difficult. But uh, this is definitely one of my favorite stories in Night Shifts. so I would really love to see how di- the different takes on the film. If they're, assuming that these three movies have <laughs> kind of adapted them in their own special way, but first we're going to start with a summary. I am the doorway is written in first person from the viewpoint of a man named Arthur. He's sharing his porch with a friend named Richard and had just explained to Richard that he killed a boy. Well, he didn't do it. They did. The extraterrestrial beings whom he is hosting in his body. He is their doorway into this world. He's telling Richard where he buried the body. And if Richard wants to see it for himself, he'll have to take Richard's dune buggy as Arthur is in a wheelchair and that will not move through the sand. But first, Richard wants to hear Arthur's story one more time. Not the story about how the boy was killed, but before that, when Arthur was in space. Before Arthur begins, his fingers, which are bandaged, begin to itch. Beneath the bandages, new eyes stare blindly into the darkness that the bandages force on them. And so, Arthur describes the flight that he took on Saturn 16 with a fellow astronaut named Cody. They were headed for Venus, leaving behind the Senate, who continued to argue over an appropriations bill for further deep space exploration, and NASA, who simply hoped that the two men would find something, anything, to justify their program. The deep space program had not been going well. From Borman, Anders, and Lavelle, who orbited the moon in 68 and found an empty, forbidding world that looked like dirty beach sand... To Markin and Jax, who touched down on Mars 11 years later to find an arid wasteland of frozen sand and a few struggling lynchings, the deep space program had been an expensive bust. And there had been casualties Peterson and Lederer eternally circling the sun when all at once nothing worked on the second to last Apollo flight. John Davis, whose little orbiting observatory was holed by a meteoroid in a one in a thousand fluke. No, the space program was hardly swinging along. The way things looked, the Venus orbit might be our last chance to say, we told you so. Arthur explains to Richard some minor details of their journey and how Cody had to go outside the shuttle to bang on their DESA until it decided to operate. The DESA being deep space antenna, broadcasting in high-frequency pulses for anyone who wanted to listen. And if Cody brought back inside some interstellar plague... There was nothing within the shuttle that said so. Richard tells Arthur to finish the story. Arthur describes how they made it to Venus and how they got a great look at the planet. The cloud cover is equal parts methane, ammonia, dust, and flying shit. The whole planet looks like the Grand Canyon in a wind tunnel. Corey estimated wind speed at about 600 miles per hour near the surface. Our probe beeped all the way down and then went out with a squawk we saw no vegetation and no sign of life. Spectroscope indicated only traces of the valuable minerals, and that was Venus. Nothing but nothing. Except it scared me. It was like circling a haunted house in the middle of deep space. I know how unscientific that sounds, but I was scared gutless until we got out of there. I think if our rockets hadn't gone off, I would have cut my throat on the way down. It's not like the moon. The moon is desolate, but somehow antiseptic. That world we saw was utterly unlike anything that anyone has ever seen. Maybe it's a good thing that cloud cover is there. It was like a skull that's been picked clean. That's the closest I can get. On their way back to Earth, they were told that the Senate voted to slash the program's funds in half. And honestly, Arthur was almost glad. Maybe they didn't belong out there. Twelve days later, the shoot was filed on reentry and Cody died from the impact. Arthur was paralyzed from the waist down. But he received the Medal of Honor, a lot of money, and his wheelchair. He moved to the Gulf three years later. Richard asks to see Arthur's hands, and Arthur very sharply declines. But Richard doesn't understand why this has only started happening to Arthur now, when it's been five years since his space mission. Artie doesn't know, of course. Perhaps it's the gestation period. Maybe he didn't get it out there. Maybe it entered him in Florida. He can't say for sure. Arthur tells Richard he'll show him his hands, but only if he absolutely has to. So Richard agrees to go with Arthur to look for the boy's body. It was a boy that Arthur didn't know personally. He just saw him every now and then on the beach, walking with a sieve under his arm, looking for coins dropped by tourists. Occasionally, they would wave to each other. It was noncommittal. Strangers, yet brothers year-round dwellers set against a sea of money-spending, Cadillac-driving, loud-mouthed tourists. That night, the night it happened, Arthur had taken the bandages off his hands. The itching had been intolerable. It was always better when they could look through their eyes. And Arthur describes it this way, it was a feeling like no other in the world, as if I were a portal just slightly ajar through which they were peeking at a world which they hated and feared But the worst part was that I could see too, in a way. Imagine your mind transported into a body of a housefly. A housefly looking into your own face with a thousand eyes. Then perhaps you can begin to see why I kept my hands bandaged, even when there was no one around to see them. The changes to his hand had begun in Miami during Arthur's meeting with an investigator from the Navy Department named Cresswell. It was an annual meeting, a checkup, so to speak, and his hands had begun to itch, and by the time he drove back home, the itch had become unbearable. If you have ever suffered through the healing of a deep cut or a surgical incision, you may have some idea of the kind of itch I mean. Live things seemed to be crawling and boring into my flesh. The tips of his fingers had been red, tiny perfect circles above the fingerprint, red circles of infection on the space between the first and second joint of each thumb and finger. On the skin between the second joint and knuckle. The flesh had been hot, feverish, the flesh soft and gelid, like the flesh of an apple gone rotten. He feared leprosy, had called his doctor, who was out on a fishing cruise, and he tried to look through a medical encyclopedia, which was very vague. And when he closed his eyes, he realized he could still see the book. Now it was smeary and monstrous, distorted, a fourth dimensional counterpart, and yet still unmistakably, a book, and he was not the only one watching it. I raised my hand slowly to my face, catching an eerie vision of my living room turned into a horror house. I screamed. There were eyes peering up at me through splits in the flesh of my fingers, and even as I watched the flesh was dilating, retreating, as they pushed their mindless way up to the surface. But that was not what made me scream. I had looked into my own face and seen a monster. At the supposed gravesite of the murdered boy, Richard begins to dig. He digs and digs, but there is no body. Arthur is positive that they moved the body. They used him to do it. He hadn't bandaged his hands the night before, so of course they could see and act. They used Artie to move the body while he slept. Arthur tries to explain this to Richard. They used me to move him, I said dully. They're getting the upper hand, Richard. They're forcing their doorway open, a little at a time. A hundred times a day, I find myself standing in front of some perfectly familiar object, a spatula, a picture, even a can of beans, with no idea how I got there. Holding my hands out, showing it to them, seeing it as they do, as an obscenity, something twisted and grotesque. This is really difficult for Richard to believe, considering Arthur is paralyzed from the waist down, He couldn't move, couldn't walk to do something like moving a boy's body. Arthur tries to explain this by using an analogy with the dune buggy. He says, this is dead too, but when you enter it, you can make it go. You can make it kill. It couldn't stop you even if it wanted to. I could hear my voice rising hysterically. I am the doorway. Can't you understand that? They killed the boy Richard. They moved the body. Richard thinks that Arthur needs to see a doctor. He had already checked with a contact earlier, a woman who would have heard if a kid had been reported missing after not coming home the night before. But no one had reported any boy missing. Needing Richard to understand, Arthur finally begins unwrapping his hands. And after discovering what had lived in his fingers, Arthur had bandaged them up every time he went out. He didn't want to end up a prisoner due to his own failing flesh, so he didn't bother calling back his doctor or telling Richard what was happening when it first began to happen. He describes it this way. Little by little, I felt them. Them. An anonymous intelligence. I Never really wondered what they looked like or where they had come from. It was moot. I was their doorway and their window on the world. I got enough feedback from them to feel their revulsion and horror, to know that our world was very different from theirs. Enough feedback to feel their blind hate. But still they watched. Their flesh was embedded in my own. I began to realize that they were using me, actually manipulating me. And then the boy had passed by, raising his hand toward Arthur in a wave. Arthur had been about to call the Navy Department investigator to tell him what was happening, that he had to have picked up something in deep space or while orbiting Venus. Sure, the Navy would study him, but at least he wouldn't wake up wanting to scream because he could feel them watching. Watching. Before Arthur could stop himself, he found himself lurching toward the boy. The door was open now, because his hands hadn't been bandaged. My eyes seemed to close, and I saw only with those alien eyes. so a monstrous alabaster seascape, overtopped with a sky like a great purple way. Saw a leaning, eroded shack that might have been the carcass of some Unknown, flesh-devouring creature. Saw an abominated creature that moved and respired and carried a device of wood and wire under its arm, a device constructed of geometrically impossible right angles. And Arthur could only imagine what the boy thought, seeing him lumbering toward him, his hands red and split, shining with eyes, just before the boy's head burst. Arthur says, I know what I thought. I thought I had peeked over the rim of the universe and into the fires of hell itself. And now, showing Richard his hands, Arthur warns him that he has to run if it seems as though he might hurt him. Richard agrees. And when Arthur shows Richard his hands, a face he had known and loved for five years became a distorted, living monolith. Richard is horrified. And as thunder and lightning fills the sky, Arthur tells Richard to run. In his mind, the eyes have seen him. How hideous Richard was. How had he lived near him, spoken to him? He was a mute pestilence. Richard did run, but it didn't help. Arthur's hands reached for the sky and lightning struck Richard, enveloped him. There was the smell of ozone and burnt flesh. When Arthur woke, he was on his porch again. There was no sign of the dune buggy or Richard. His hands were still unwrapped, but the eyes were open and glazed. They had exhausted themselves. Arthur knew what needed to be done. He had already noticed the physical changes taking shape. His fingers were beginning to shorten and change. There was a small hearth in the living room, and in season, I had been in the habit of lighting a fire against the damp Florida cold. I lit one now, moving with haste. I had no idea when they might wake up to what I was doing. When it was burning well, I went out to the back, to the kerosene drum, and soaked both hands. They came awake immediately, screaming with agony. I almost didn't make it back to the living room and to the fire, but I did make it. That was seven years ago. Arthur is still living near the gulf, watching the rockets take off. He had found out the boy's name, and it didn't matter. The boy had been from the village, as he thought, but his mother had expected him to stay with a friend on the mainland that night, and the alarm was not raised until the following Monday. Richard, well, everyone thought Richard was an odd duck anyway, and they suspect he may have gone back to Maryland or taken up with some woman. As for Arthur, he writes that he's tolerated. He says, I have quite a reputation for eccentricity myself. After all, how many ex- astronauts regularly write their elected Washington officials with the idea that space exploration money could be better spent elsewhere? He continues to say, I get along just fine with these hooks. There was some terrible pain for the first year or so, but the human body can adjust to almost anything. I shave with them and even tie my own shoelaces. And as you can see, my typing is nice and even. I don't expect to have any trouble putting the shotgun into my mouth or pulling the trigger. It started again three weeks ago, you see. There's a perfect circle of 12 golden eyes on my chest. So I thought this was an excellent short story. And I recall when I was younger seeing the book cover. The one with the bandaged hand on the front. And then when you open the flap, it was just the fingertips with the eyeballs. It was so creepy. And honestly, body horror of any kind tends to make me big, bit squeamish. Which, if you guys have listened to the Stan chapters, you would know that. Especially things that happen under the skin. The story absolutely lives up to that amazing book cover. Deep space exploration has been the basis of many horror movies and novels. That fear of the unknown, much like the ocean, where there, you know, we don't know what's beyond what we've been able to see and explore so far. And it's that question like, how far should we go? Do we want to know what's out there? I took a bit of a deep dive into space exploration myself after reading the story. And honestly, it's terrifying knowing what's out there or not out there, knowing what could happen, how many things could occur that would completely destroy this planet in an instant before we'd even know what was happening. Personally, I am someone who does believe that there is life out there beyond our own planet. I don't know how far, I don't know what kind of life, but I refuse to believe that we are the only living things in this universe. So yeah, that sort of made the story (laughs) all the scarier for me. Knowing that the deeper we go, the more we explore, the more likely it is that we'll find something alien or bring it back to Earth, either willingly or otherwise. It also sent me into some research on space casualties, astronauts that have died in space or preparing on, you know, preparing to journey there. And that was a really sobering thing. Um, But King creates his own space history within the story with a deeper space exploration program. We landed on Mars. People orbited the sun. It didn't go well, but and now there's this Venus probe. I love how he described the planet because <laughs> my twins—they're in the second grade—and they just got finished uh, with planet, you know, science with the planets and the stars and you know, learning what is on each planet. So I kind of already knew a little bit about Venus, which is funny because I should know this from my own education, but that's, well, (laughs) it's way in the past for me. But it was really fascinating. And I really enjoyed how King described Venus that you know, in this moment, Artie can't bear being near it. Arthur, I keep calling him Artie. (laughs) But knowing that if they couldn't leave, if their rockets wouldn't go off to send them back home, that he would kill himself because he could not stand being near this planet. He describes it as, you know, circling a haunted house in space and a skull picked clean. All Artie wanted was to get out of there. And he even felt some relief when their funds were halved. As an astronaut, he wonders, should they be out there looking for whatever it is they're looking for? So there's already something ominous about his exploration towards Venus, the probe. And did Cody bring something in with him when he went out to fix their DESA? Was it something already picked up while orbiting Venus? And it took a while for these things to even appear. Five years later, eyes that saw into a different world, eyes that had begun to control Arthur even when he slept if his hands were unwrapped. It's fascinating to see the world and humans through the eyes of these, um, well, Eyes. (laughs) Arthur sees his friend Richard. He sees a boy hunting for fallen change in the sand and ocean. But these eyes, they see something else. They see things that are repulsive and monstrous. They see the boy and Richard and they're disgusted by them, perhaps even scared, threatened. I imagine it's how we might see beings in their natural habitat, wherever that might be. When we come across a creature that frightens us, or monsters that don't fit in our world, aliens, we're the aliens to these beings. So did they kill the boy and Richard because they're evil, or did they kill the boy and Richard because to them, it's a matter of survival? Artie is their doorway. Do they see Artie the same way, or do they tolerate him because he is their host? I really did like the non-linear storytelling the jumping back and forth between Arthur and Richard and Arthur's space mission to Venus story, and that was a great way to, I guess, build the tension. Because we have Richard. He is us. He is the reader. He is skeptical of Arthur's story. Arthur has been back from space for five years, and these eyes have only now appeared. Richard is asking the right questions. He wants to see Arthur's hands for proof, but Arthur refuses, at least at first. So we're able to wonder, is this all in Arthur's head? Maybe he was traumatized himself when he was paralyzed. Maybe he was traumatized by what he saw with Venus, by what he saw out there, by the re-entry that took the life of Cody. Plus, he's visited yearly by Cresswell, the Navy investigator. And Arthur feels like that man is searching for something whenever they speak. Perhaps some knowledge or sign that Arthur isn't himself. So at least for the first part of the story, we're able to wonder, like Richard, if maybe Arthur is not right in his mind. Richard cannot find the boy's body, where Arthur insists that he buried it. And without the body, Arthur decides that, you know, they, the eyes, must have used him to move the body. Honestly, there are so many red flags here that Arthur is not well, that he is suffering from some kind of mental illness. At least until he finally takes off the bandages and shows Richard what has happened to him, followed by Richard's almost instantaneous death. Using an unreliable narrator is a very effective way to tell the story, and unreliable narrators seem to be very, very popular these days, especially for thrillers and stuff. And sometimes they're done great, and then sometimes it's just, it feels like a generic plot device. But with this story, it's excellent because, again, King builds that tension by shifting between Arthur and Richard, and then Arthur describing his mission. He has the reader doubting Arthur's story, at least for a while, and it's almost like we are Richard, listening to Arthur's explanations, not entirely sure what the truth is until it's too late. We don't see the full power of what these eyes can do until Arthur thinks about how he killed the boy, and then how he kills Richard. He clearly has no control over it, except when they are bandaged, which may have been tolerable if they didn't itch so bad. I have had poison ivy on my hands before in between my fingers, and that is torture. So this sounded so much worse, and I would be lying if I said I didn't feel my hands itch a little bit while reading the story. These are not just eyes peering out into this strange foreign world. They have more power than that. This alien life form can make Artie move despite him being paralyzed by the waist down, from the waist down. And they live inside of him. He can cut off his limbs, all of them. And they'll simply find a new area of his body to surface and push through. So will death be the end of it? And it does make you wonder. Or will these things simply find a new host? Can this be passed by touch? There are a lot of unknowns here, but that's what makes it so good. How did Artie even get this alien life form inside of him? As far as I know, he didn't leave the shuttle. Cody did. So if Cody had survived the crash, would Cody have been the one with these eyeballs pushing through his fingers or would have happened to both of them like the other stories we read so far the end of this is just the cherry on top of an already terrifying story arthur destroyed his hands to the point of needing to use hooks and he was fine for seven years thinking that no doubt he had destroyed that alien life form that had been using him to kill and now he's planning his suicide because it started all over again three weeks before. He's typing out his story now, probably for whoever might find him. Instead of his hands, which can't be used, the eyes have burrowed and made their home in his chest. So while he ruined the eyes in his hands, there were more either they were dormant, gestating, or these were the same eyes he had destroyed in his hands, finding a new place. We just we don't know. You could also wonder if perhaps this is all in Arthur's head. Maybe he did manage to kill this life form living inside of him. Maybe he's been unable to deal with the trauma of losing two people, killing two people, including his friend. Maybe those red circles on his chest aren't really there. Maybe those eyes aren't really there. I suppose there's an argument here that none of Arthur's story is real, that it was all in his head and he's mentally ill. But I think that there are just enough details to believe him. To know that the boy and Richard were both killed by this alien life form, more powerful than anything I think Arthur could have done on his own. On the surface, this seems like a sci-fi horror story that deals with the potential consequences of deep space exploration. But I think if you dig a little deeper, you could view it as a horror story dealing with mental illness of how fear and trauma can affect the mind is very ambiguous and I love that about this story. You just you could probably sit here and argue with someone who believes it's happening and someone who says it's all in his head. So I love that about the story. It just it invokes a lot of discussion. I think if I were to rate the story to 5, I would give it a bit of 5. I enjoyed it. I I remember loving this one when I first read it, but rereading it now with kind of trying to like analyze it a little bit deeper, I loved it even more. So I'm definitely going to give this one a 5. And if you guys have any thoughts on I Am The Doorway, feel free to email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. I would love to hear what you guys think of it. Obviously, these are all my thoughts. So if you have completely interpreted this story a completely different way, I would love to hear that too. As for The Stand from CBS All Access, I plan to have another episode out here in a day or so. I'm going to review the last two episodes, The Walk and The Vigil. I guess let's flip that, The Vigil and then The Walk. I do have. A lot of thoughts on both of these episodes, and I hope you guys are enjoying the show. And with that being said, you guys, that's it for this week's episode of The Circle Opens. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are enjoying the podcast, a rating review on Apple Podcasts would be amazing. I appreciate it. Thank you to everyone who has already left me a rating and review. You guys are amazing. I appreciate you so much. You can also find me on social media at The Circle Opens, and again, thecircleopens.com which is my Stephen King slash The Stand blog. So that's it, you guys. Have a happy Saturday. January is over. We're heading into February. And please stay safe. Stay healthy. And M-O-O-N. That spells see you next week.